Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Friday, September the 15th, 2023. It is currently 6.08 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And once again, for the 11th time, I believe, I believe this is episode, I believe, a number 11, part 11, we're going to turn our attention to the doctrine of sanctification. Now, because of what happened in part 10, I am very tempted, very tempted to revisit what we did in part 10, to remind you, to try to really emphasize the significance of what we did in part 10. But I, I am going to, I'm trying to convince myself not to do that. But we, we, we basically, I gave you two outlines in part 10, two, two outlines. And I think that those two outlines will play, I think they play a significant role, maybe the most important role in this entire discussion about sanctification. Now, someone wanted me to take these two outlines and compare it to the order of salvation, order salutis, as, as often referenced. And I, I still may go to that, but at the same time, whenever we're in these series, I have to make these, you know, editorial decisions, right? Okay, wait a minute. We covered, we gave these two outlines. How do these outlines relate to Order Salutis? I could chase that. I don't want to say chase a rabbit. I could pursue that line of reasoning, but I think it would get further and further and further and further away, maybe from where we need to go. Now, once we kind of finish this initial kind of part of the study, we can then expand it out and then maybe revisit that. But I would really challenge you. I don't, I try not to do this too much because it's kind of self-promotion, but you really should go back and listen to the last one. Rarely do I tell you, you have to go back and listen to that. You have to. But in this particular case, you really need to go back and listen to it. And you need to write those two outlines down and you really need to think about it. And by all means, I don't know if you have a firm understanding of your order salutis, your, your understanding of the order of salvation. I don't know if you've ever written yours out. You really should attempt to. And then you may want to take yours to the, your church and say, what is our order salutis? What, what, is, what is our understanding of the order of salvation? Which comes first? How does it work? Right? And see what they give you. You, you may realize, wait, I'm in complete disagreement with my church. Or you may realize you're in complete agreement or your church may have no idea what orders of salutis is. The order of salutis, order salutis, what is that? Order of salvation. They may not even, they may not even understand, but. If they do understand, then you, you would do it because there's radically different approaches to this, right? If you look at the reform order salutis versus uh, maybe an Arminian one, it's going to be radically different, radically different. So, um, I think that that's very important. So I would like to do that, but we're not. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to move to, and remember, we are utilizing, we're utilizing the Bible studies for life. Here it is, right here, Bible Studies for Life, the Personal Study Guide, Summer 2023. Now, I know it's September and some of you is like, fall is in the air. I'm going to get a pumpkin spice latte and I'm going to sit outside and watch the leaves change color. Okay, for those who live in that fairy tale world, the real world, the state, the country of Texas, it's still 147 degrees. We don't know what this fall thing that you speak of is. But so for, I'm going to still say it's still summer. It, it's 
still summer. That that's what I'm I'm going to say, right? In fact, I was just outside just a little while ago turning on the pool pump, right? So because it's it, it's still summer, all right. So so I I I know what you say, but it's it's not summer. It's summer. It's summer. Stop. Stop with your nonsense. Stop. Stop. Come back to reality. All right. Back to reality. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to start quoting lyrics. Okay. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. We have reached session number five and our study on the doctrine of separation. Or the doctrine of separation, the doctrine of sanctification. I'm giving it away. I'm giving it away. All right. On the doctrine of sanctification, whenever you talk about sanctification, you talk about being set apart. All right. And in some churches, ah, don't you hate when you mess up like that and you get, you, you, you say something before you want to say it? We've been looking at the doctrine of sanctification. And in some churches, they have a very spelled out, a very strong doctrine of what they call the doctrine of separation. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Touch not the unclean thing. There are some churches that is a major part of their theological and doctrinal system. And you're taught very on, come out from among them and be ye separate. You get away from the ungodly. You get away from the ungodly influences. You need to come out from worldly practices and worldly thinking. And you don't watch movies and you don't listen to certain kinds of music and you don't play cards and you don't do this and you don't, and you don't go here and you don't go there and you don't dress this way, you know, and, and they are, they, it's like the doctor, they, they don't call it the doctrine of sanctification. They call it the doctrine of separation. And you probably are somewhat familiar with that. And uh, maybe what we'll do, I have, a, I have a course on discipleship. I think it's on my Kindle. It's a like 51 lesson course on discipleship. And they dedicate like three or four lessons on separation. So maybe we'll work through that at some point in this series because separation and sanctification are very much apart, uh, are very much connected because sanctification is the idea of being set apart. Now we've talked about the positional set apart. Well, they're talking about the practical. Well, session five, the reason this is coming to my mind, the reason I'm mentioning separation with sanctification is session five here is called set apart and the way we live. Set apart in the way we live. Clearly, this has nothing to do with our positional separation or our, pres- our positional se- uh, set, uh, separation, if you could say it that way. But we are separated positionally. We are sanctified positionally. So, but this one is very much about the practical sanctification slash the practical separation. Set apart in the way you live. Now, interesting enough, Right underneath this on page uh, page 99 of this study guide, it says set apart in the way we live. So just you may want to write down those two words, separation and sanctification, just because I don't know what church background you come from, right? Like my, when I was in the independent fundamental Baptist world in Papillion, Nebraska, oh, wow, the doctrine of separation, separation. I think I heard the word separation far more than I ever heard the word sanctification. In fact, when I first visited that church, what that, that on a Sunday, I think it was Monday or may have been Tuesday. They were knocking on my door, right? The pastor came to visit, right? To ch- and when he found out that we were attending a Southern Baptist church, before he left, you know what he said to us? Come out from among them and be ye separate. 
that we needed to practice separation and separating ourselves from the ungodly, worldly, corrupt Southern Baptist Convention. And that, that, I mean, that, that should have given me a clue of what I was walking into, but, but on one end, it looks, sounded so good on the outside, right? It sounded so good. So separation, separation and sanctification, but underneath this set apart in the way we live, they have a picture of people in a movie theater. They have a picture of people in the movie theater. Now, what does that mean? What, what should we take from that? Are they going to go down the road of come out from, you know, separate? We should be separate in the way we live and we should not go to movie theaters. Is that what they're going to do? I don't know. We're going to find out. We're going to find out. Then they have question one underneath this. Now, typically, no, I am going to do this tonight. I'm going to try for about the next 45 minutes. I'm going to try my very best to stay as as glued to the study guide as I can. I said I was going to do that in session four and we obliterated that study guide. We, we created a whole outline on the spot impromptu. We completely, <laughs> we, we rebelled out. I'm going to try to stay consistent with this, but you know what? I, I, I can't really make that promise, but I'm going to try. All right. So here we go. Set apart in the way we live. Then question one, here's the question. You ready? What actor's performance in a movie stands out in your mind? Okay, that may be, maybe they're not going to go the traditional way. Hey, be set, set apart in the way you live. Don't go to the movies. Don't, maybe they're going to, maybe they're going to go a different direction because they want you to think about what actor's performance in a movie stands out in your mind. Now, remember, these study guides are created for your typical small group, that Sunday school situation where you sit around in a semi-commercial, or semi-commercial, a semi-circle, and everyone asks questions, right? You ask people questions because you break the ice. See, if you ask like a theological or biblical question, nobody will answer. So you got to break the ice. You got to get them psychologically prepared to answer. So you got to start with something simple, something that everyone can relate to. Hey, what actor's performance in a movie stands out in your mind? And then someone will say something and someone will be, all, someone will be like, whoa, I was thinking this movie and then this movie. And then you get everyone talking and then now you've broken the ice and now everyone's ready to participate in some. Okay, all right. I know that's the way you're supposed to do it, but all right. So there you go. We, we don't really care about, I don't really care about your answer and you really don't care about my, my answer because those questions are not asked to really get the answer. They're just asked to get you answering. Okay, but all right, here we go. The point on the very next page, they have the point. Here's the point. We grow in Christ's likeness as we walk in truth and love. Now that's interesting. Okay. Okay. They're not going, uh, hey, be set apart. We, because some could say we grow in likeness. As we walk in holiness, as we separate ourselves from the world, they don't seem to be going in that direction. They seem to be going in the direction we grow in Christ-likeness as we walk in truth and love. All right, that that sounds good. If we're going to have a separate doctrine of separation based on walking in truth and love, and we're going to have a separate or a sanctification based on walking in truth and love. Okay, we'll, we'll see where they're going to go here. Then underneath this, they have a section called the Bible meets life. Now, I wonder where they're going to go with this. Here we go. Here we go. As a teenager, my first job was working in a movie theater and video store in my hometown. Through that work, I became familiar with many 
unforgettable movies and actors' performances. These included both modern films and actors, as well as movies and performers of yesteryear. I couldn't articulate why some actors made such an impression on me, but as I learned more about acting, it began to make sense. Method actors are likely to be trained thespians. The original actor Thespis performed an ancient Greek amphitheater. Actors were called hypocrites, a Greek word meaning one who wears a mask. These hypocrites shielded their identity to play a role as someone else. Today, some Christians are actually called hypocrites. Mask-wearing fakes. This perception may be unfair and perhaps unfounded, but it's still believed by many in our culture. As believers, though, we can commit ourselves to becoming authentic disciples who mirror the character of Christ instead. That way, when people see us, they see Jesus, and there is no conflicting message in the word we deliver. Now, I'm going to just right here, I'm going to grab a box of matches and I'm going to burn this study guide because that is total trash. And I know immediately people are going to be offended by that. But it's total trash. You're never truly going to be an authentic disciple who mirrors the character of Christ. You will never truly be that. You can't be that. Because to be an authentic disciple who mirrors the character of Christ, you would have to be basically sinless. You would have to be holy. And you cannot. This is the whole problem with the the entire evangelical world. We teach this idea that, hey, hey, the world calls us hypocrites. Oh, no. But you know why they call us hypocrites? Because you're pretending to be something that you're not. You're pretending to be an authentic follower of Christ whose life mirrors the character of Christ. The fact is you pretend you wrap yourself in a robe of self-righteousness. You wrap yourself in a robe of condemnation and judging and pointing your finger at everyone else. You wrap yourself in this false delusion that you can do it and that you do it. And we all pretend to be something that we're not. And sooner or later, the facade cracks. Sooner or later, the curtain gets pulled back. Some people never truly get exposed. Some people, they don't think they're exposed, but other people talking behind their back going, hey, for someone claiming to be a Christian, they're such a jerk. And for someone claiming to be a Christian, they're not very loving. And for someone claiming to be a Christian, and then you get criticized. I've said it a million times. The message we should give to the world is that you are a sinner. I am a sinner. I can't live up to God's standards. You cannot live up to God's standards. And our only hope is putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And even after we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we still cannot live up to the standard. That's why we are saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. And our salvation is based on what Christ did, not what we do. So we're still going to fall short. Should we fall short? No. Are we condemned when we fall short? Yes. Should we feel guilty when we do? Yes. But that is the reality of who we are. We are a sinner. We are still a sinner. The things we want to do, we won't do. And the things we don't want to do, those are the things we will do. But this whole concept that the way to combat hypocrisy is to just become basically sinless is the most ridiculous thing. You want to combat hypocrisy? Pull off the mask and say, here I am, a sinner. Yes, I lust and I think this and I do this and I don't do this and I'm not always loving and I'm self-centered and I'm a jerk and I just be honest. 
Now, I'm not saying you have to stand up in the middle of church and be honest. Just be honest with yourself. And when someone, when you're talking to someone about Christianity, don't put forth, because this is the way Christian, this is the way Christianity was taught to me. Here, here I was before I was saved. Then I become saved. Now, here is my life after I'm saved. And all I'm supposed to do is now give, I was taught how to do the testimony thing. I was paraded around from church after church when I was a teenager to give my, t- tell your sad, horrible story and all the bad things you did. Now tell everyone now how you don't do any of those things. But I was a teenager. I was still struggling with this and struggling with that. And I was making this kind of problem and I was committing this kind of sin. I was being a hypocrite. What I should have been able to do is stand and go, I've put my faith in Jesus Christ. But ladies and gentlemen, I still struggle with this. I'm a teenage guy. I struggle with this and I struggle with that. And I do this and I do that. But the church doesn't want to hear that. See, now go back to the point. We grow in Christ likeness when we walk in truth and love. The minute you tell people, as believers, though, we can commit ourselves to becoming authentic disciples who mirror the character of Christ. That way, when people see us, they see Jesus. And there is no conflicting message in the word we deliver. That's not walking in truth. That's walking in a delusion. That's walking in a lie. What if the real step in the doctrine of separation, the real step in the doctrine of sanctification, is that those of us who have been saved by the grace of God by an imputed righteousness— are more real and authentic with people that we're still sinners and we're still frail and we still have feet of clay and we still sin in thought, word, and deed by what we do and by what we leave undone. We, we, we sin in our minds and our words and our feelings and desires and in our actions. What if they saw a more authentic and transparent disciple where we're like, hey, I'm taking the mask and I'm, I'm, I'm laying it down and I'm willing to admit to you that I'm a sinner and that I have failed. And I'm a man of unclean lips and a man of unclean hands and of unclean feet and a land of unclean cleanliness. And I am not better than anyone else. I may not be committing your sin. I may not be committing the sin that I used to commit. I may be committing different kinds of sin, but I'm still a sinner, still sinning. Now, the next page, page 101, they have this. Oh, I know this is making me so very popular. I understand this. It says, what does the Bible say? And they point me to 2 John. 2 John, verses 1 through 4. 2 John, verses 1 through 4. The second epistle of John Verses one through four. There's no chapter here. It's only just, you know, basically one chapter. Here we go. The second epistle of John, verses one through four. The elder, this is how it reads, second John, verses one through four. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and have not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, 
which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. I have rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we received a commandment from the Father. Now I'm going to read it now from the study guide because then you will hear it twice. Are you ready? Here we go. The elder to the elect lady in her church, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that remains in us and I will, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be, will, uh, will be with us from God, the father and from Jesus Christ, the son of the father in truth and love. I was, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth and keeping with a command we have received from the father. Please note how often truth, 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 truth is mentioned in these four verses mentioned a lot. I do find it fascinating. These are the four verses they go to in session five. I don't really know exactly where they're going, but we're getting ready to find out. So here we go. Second John begins by the, uh, by, Second John begins by the author identifying himself as the elder. Now, if you look at it carefully, it says the elder to the elect lady. So they're saying this is John identifying him or the author identifies himself as the elder. It says church tradition and the standard evangelical dating of Bible books make it clear this was none other than the Apostle John who wrote the letter after being exiled by the Roman Emperor Domitian on the Greek island of Patmos. Right? This is this is there. You can argue, you can read and check other sources to see if they agree with this. It says the primary purpose of this epistle is to address a destructive teaching that was being circulated. John warned them about divisive ideas being taught among members and their local church. It involved errors about the identity and nature of Christ. The deceptive teaching involved two grave offenses being committed. So they're saying this was written to warn people about heresy that had basically come into the church. And they say that these two, this deceptive teaching involved two things. Number one, heresy, false teaching regarding a major Christian doctrine. They don't identify which doctrine here that it it was. And number two, blasphemy, teaching or, or behavior corrupting the name or character of God. So heresy and blasphemy was the issue that was being addressed. They don't name the heresy here. They don't name the teaching. They don't name the behavior. Maybe they will, but they don't at this point. This would challenge me. Like if I was, if I was at church and I was going through this with the congregation, I would tell everyone, stop what we're doing. Stop. Time out. Everyone grab a Bible dictionary, look up an entry for the epistles of John. Let's find the entry for 2 John, the second epistle, and let's see what they say in regards to the introduction for this book. Then I would say, if you have a study Bible, let's look at and then gather some basic information and how everyone perceives what was going on so that we, we would have a better understanding. Is this going to do that? I, I'm, I highly doubt it, but maybe they will. So we will see. So let's keep reading. Says while exposing these matters, John used the occasion to explore foundational themes essential to the Christian life. In doing so, he provides us with tremendous insight into his understanding of the Christian life. Now, if it is true that he's trying to combat and, and deal with heresy and blasphemy that had infiltrated the church, 
then if he tries to explore foundational themes, then you can understand why. He's trying to give a good foundation that the people can stand on that will help protect them from the heresy and the blasphemy. All right. Now they say three key teachings are outlined that will keep us from the type of theological error that could cause us to abandon faith. They say three key teachings are outlined that will keep us from the type of theological error that could cause us to abandon the faith. Now, well, okay, we could get into a whole discussion right there, but it goes on. These same principles undergrid the doctrine of sanctification that serves as the cornerstone to Christian discipleship. Together, these principles make us set apart, make us set apart in the way we live. All right. So they say there's three key teachings and they basically then identify these key teachings, I guess, principles, I guess these are principles that undergrid the doctrine of sanctification that serves as the cornerstone to Christian discipleship. Together, these principles make us set apart in the way we live. Okay. I want to hear this. I want to know where I'm, I'm, I'm interested. They've gotten, they've piqued my curiosity. Here we go. According to them, here we go. The three principles of growing in Christ-likeness. They say there are three principles to growing in Christ-likeness. And these three principles are truth, love, and obedience. And they think they're all found right here in the second epistle of John. Let's see if we can identify them, all right? I think you know the first one. The first ones are found in verses one through four. The first one, I should say, is found in verses one through four. I don't think it will take us long to find it. Let me read it again. The elder... The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And I, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment for from the Father. Now they say the first principle of growing in Christ likeness is truth and found in verses one through four. All right. I will agree with this much. I don't, I'm not willing to agree with everything that's being said here, but I will agree with this. Truth is mentioned a number of times between verse one and four. All right. The next one they say is found between verses three and, and verse three and verses five through six. Here we go. Let's see if we can find it. Verse three. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father and truth and love, verse five. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we have from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. They say the next principle is love. The first is truth. The second is love. And then the third, they pull from verse four, six, eight through nine. Let's see if we can find it. Verse four, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the father. Then look at verse six. And this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that ye have heard from the beginning. Ye should walk in it. Then the next one is verse eight. 
Look to your, look to yourselves that we lo- lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Verse nine, uh, nine. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. The third thing they say is obedience. So the three principles to grow in Christ-likeness, if you want to grow in Christ-likeness, three principles that I guess lay down the foundation for sanctification, three principles, three truths, I guess that they needed to fight this heresy was they needed truth, they need to have love, act in love, love, and they need to walk in obedience. All right. Now, I still don't know exactly how we how we utilize this and what we do. I do agree truth. If we're going to talk about truth, the first thing we have to have with truth, we got to have the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. And that truth about ourselves is being honest with what we are. But okay, I'm going to see which direction they go here. Here we go. Here we go. John mentions the first principle truth five times in the opening four verses. He specifically discusses the concepts of loving, knowing, remaining, being and walking in truth. All right, so here again. So the first principle is truth. And he specifically discussed the concepts of loving, knowing, remaining, being, and walking in truth. Meaning that we, I guess we should love truth, know truth, remain in truth, be uh, uh, remaining, being, being in truth, I guess, and walking in truth. Let's see if we can see those specific things in verses one through four. I'm going to go back to it. I'm going to go back to it. I'm trying to follow their thinking here. I'm trying to follow those things. Let's see if we can find those concepts. The elder and to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. All right. It's just, it says in concepts of loving Uh, He discusses the concepts of loving the truth, knowing the truth, remaining, being, and walking in truth. Whom I love in the truth. Okay, there's loving in the truth, I guess. Loving, that's not loving the truth. Whom I love in the truth. Doesn't say loving the truth, right? And not I only, but also they that have known the truth. There is knowing the truth. Okay, For for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever, Right? Does that, I guess that means remaining in us. Right? Okay. I, I guess I'm getting this. I'm having a hard time following their logic here. Right? Next, uh, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in the truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. All right. So. So they claim that in verses one through four, the concepts of loving, okay, I guess, loving, I, it wouldn't be loving the truth. It would just be loving in truth, I guess, knowing the truth. I don't, is, does it say we know the truth? Well, uh, uh, all they that have known the truth, I guess, okay, I guess maybe so. All right, so that one may work. So we have um, loving, knowing, remaining. I guess the remaining would be uh, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. All right, remaining. The being, where is the being? Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. I guess God is being the truth, I guess. I don't know. And the next is walking in the truth, 
which is in verse 4. Okay, walking in the truth. I, I, what am I supposed to do with that? I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. Like, this is so... The study guide is so weird sometimes like this. It, it gives you these concepts like you're supposed to go, wow, that's so good. But there's no real tangible way in what I'm supposed to do with this. Then they go on to say, John begins verse three with a threefold blessing, grace, mercy, and peace. God extends these wonderful spiritual realities into the lives of those who know, believe, love, and honor the truth. And for the most part, the believers uh, were doing that. Okay, I guess. Maybe, all right. Note that John begins by extending a kind salutation to the group, including his recognition that the truth was a priority for him, for them. But his comment clearly reveals his awareness that only some of the believers were walking in the truth, despite the command that they had received from God. We are living in a time when many deny that truth exists at all. Others acknowledge the existence of truth and deny its knowledge with any certainty. And still others reject any obligation towards the truth. And contrast, the Bible commands us as believers to walk in the truth. The word walk is a synonym meaning to live. God expects and commands believers to walk or live and abide in harmony with truth. We are to know the truth, believe the truth, particularly as the as it is articulated in sacred scripture of the Bible. So I guess the first thing basically is saying is that look, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna be godly, if you're gonna be an authentic believer, if you're not gonna be a hypocrite, you gotta know the truth, love the truth, pursue the truth, and walk in accordance with the truth. The only problem is we're gonna fall short of this over and 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 over again. So what I believe is as Christians, what we have to do. I would say this, if you're going to emphasize truth, here's the truth that we need to know. We need to know and believe the truth about God as God has revealed it in his word, right? Because when we know the truth of God, you know where I'm going with this. When I, when I finally see the truth of God, then I see the truth of who I am. And then I must be willing to admit that truth. Then I must be willing to acknowledge the truth of God's word and understand that it is true even when I don't feel like it, even when I don't desire it, and even when I'm not following it, it is still true. So if you're going to say truth is a central part to sanctification, then this is the way I would say it would work, right? If you want to kind of write out a new outline here, I would outline it this way, that as Christians, we need the truth for sanctification, that we're called to the truth, the truth is important, right? And you could look at these verses and see how maybe truth, clearly truth is being emphasized here. But I would say this, we have to come to learn the truth of God. Because when we see God as he truly is, then think of it this way. When we see the truth of God, then for the first time, we see the truth of who we are. That humbles us. That keeps us from playing the hypocrite. Right? Because when you truly see who you are, you, you, you either have the choice of trying to pretend. That's why so many times Christians are like, well, we got to be a good witness. We got to be a good testimony. Now, I understand what you're trying to do, but being a good witness and a good testimony is putting on a front and not being who you are. That's not being a good testimony. That's being a good hypocrite. It's better to say, yes, I claim to be a Christian. And yes, I have some serious problems. It's not like, oh, we got to clean up the, our act because we don't want them to get a bad impression of Christians. It's a more thing of letting them know that Christians are real human beings with frail, frail, frailty and shortcomings. So I think the main thing is we have to understand the truth of God, which will allow me to see the truth of myself.
And then I have to admit that truth to myself of what I see. And then I realize, then I have to acknowledge that God's word is true, even when I don't like it, even when I hate it, and even when I know I'm not going to follow it. It's still true. Because trying to walk in it in any honest way, we're going to fall short of it. We should, but we're not ever going to. And we got to be willing to admit that. We have to be willing to admit that. Now, they go on to say here, then they go on to quote 2 John 5, 2 John verses 5 through 6, which we'll, I'll read again. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this love, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now, here's what they say. Here's what they say. I think we're going to, well, we're going to possibly run out of time. Then they say this. Having identified the importance of truth, John turns to the priority of love. Love is a familiar theme to the letter's recipients. Note that John begins by extending a kind salutation to the group, including uh, his recognition that truth was a priority to, okay, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm rereading what we, I'm. They have this at the bottom and then you go up to the next paragraph, but the paragraph, okay, my, my fault. Let me read this again. I'm supposed to jump to the next page, not go to the paragraph on the next column. The po- paragraph above and the next column goes with the, par- yeah, it's all, it's, it would make sense. It, it shouldn't be that confusing, but it's my own fault. All right, so let me read this again. Having identified the importance of truth, John turns to the priority of love. Love is a familiar theme to the letter's recipients. Turn the page who may have been exposed to the first epistle in which John wrote at length on the subject, 1 John. Jesus' unconditional love was the cornerstone of John's teaching. The command to love one another was primarily directed to believers and for believers. While Christians should certainly love unbelievers as those for whom Christ died, the primary instruction here and at the establishment of the new covenant during the Lord's Supper, he directed it to for and between Christians. While love is a beautiful image of Christian harmony, it should not be misconstrued to mean something other than what God's word describes. Our world has radically misunderstood love with ideas and images that are far from biblical. In the first letter, John taught that God is love. True love is consistent with the character of God and his word. Biblical characteristics of love are patience, kindness, gratitude, humility, sacrifice, and protection. Most importantly, love never delights in what God's word calls evil. It rejoices in truth rather than rejecting it. Now, the fact is, because true love never delights in what God's word calls evil, proves that we never truly love God and we never truly love in a way that is consistent with biblical love, meaning that we're, it, that the, the command to love is law that actually condemns and reveals you. You need to know the truth of that command and know the truth of your failure of it, knowing that Christ is the only one who ever loved or demonstrated love or was love in the way that while well, we're called to be because we're always going to fall short. It says, using the scriptural definition of love, John calls us to be unified in the truth. Christian unity is convictional and based on truth, not uh, not regardless of it. 
This remains true today. The truth of God's word, the identity of Christ, and believers' love for one another are the basis of Christian unity. This dispenses with the wishy-washy convictions and sentimentalism disconnected from biblical teachings. Remember that the purpose of 2 John was to combat a false teaching. The heretics had denied the truth about Christ's identity, uh, undermining his lordship. Well, it was probably Gnosticism, what which was the heresy that was coming in here, probably. I, I, I mean, the first John is the polemic against Gnosticism. I'm going to believe second John as well. You can verify if you agree or disagree with that. Um, And it says, um, um, it says, as a result, John was calling believers to unite in love around the truth and to be obedient in rejecting the false teaching and hallowed fellowship of those advocating things opposed to Scripture. All right, then they move on. So basically, it just says, hey, you're supposed to love, and your love should be basically perfect. Well, we're not going to have perfect love. Christ has perfect love. Christ is the example of perfect love. So if we connect love with truth, then we have the truth. We have, we have to see the truth of who God truly is. That will see ourselves as we really are. Then we have to admit how far we fall short of it. Therefore, we run to him. And then when we run to him, we once again learn more about him because we see how perfectly he loves, that he first loves us. Then we'll see how far short our love actually is. And so once we see the truth of his love, then we see the truth of our corrupted love which then means we have to rely on his love because our love is never correct. Now, we know we should be pursuing the right kind of love, but we never will ultimately accomplish it, right? Then they quote 2 John 7 through 9, all right? 2 John 7 through 9, um, here we go. The second epistle of John um, verses 7 through 9. 2 John, verses 7 through 9. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh. This is the deceiver and antichrist. That is the Gnostics. That is Gnosticism. Once again, proving that these epistles are dealing with Gnosticism more than all the other things everyone thinks they, 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 they do so. All right. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but we have received a full reward. And then verse nine, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ hath both the father and the son. All right, then. He's going to say a lot here. Right, he's going to say a lot here. He says John uh, moves now to another important aspect of being set apart. We are to be grounded in the teaching of Christ and walk in obedience to them. Now, this obedience that they mention here is more obedience to theological truth. Now that okay, we are to remain obedient to the truth that we know about God. We are to remain obedient to it. All right, that kind of obedience. That's more of where they go. I could read more about this, but I will not at this time. But clearly, they they uh, well they they connect the heresy here as docetism. All right, uh, docetism, docetism. They uh, they 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 connect it to that heresy. Now we could do a little bit more work on that. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. Um, docetism. Okay. Yeah. We'll 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 circle back to that. But we're for now we won't we won't chase that. We'll come back we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. And then on the last page, 
Once again, guess what they do? Guess what they do? They're going to give us a test. It's always got to be a test. Whenever people start, when the evangelical church deals with sanctification, there's always another test. Here's how this test is written out. You ready? Walking with God. How would you grade yourself concerning John's three walks? Now, here's the, here's the key. On a scale, below one is the lowest and 10 is the highest. So how would you rate yourself in walking in the truth? One or a 10? How would you grade yourself walking in love? The one being the lowest, 10 the highest, walking in obedience. Now, the point is, everyone has to try to convince themselves that they're walking in the truth, walking in love, and walking in obedience. And I'm telling you, we... To walk in the truth is a radically different thing than the way people perceive it to be. Walking in the truth means you walk in the truth, the walk in the truth of knowing who God is, meaning you then know who yourself are and you acknowledge that. And then you acknowledge the word is true and you're pursuing it. Doesn't mean that you're walking always in obedience to it because you're not. Walking in love. Now, once again, if we're going to walk in love, you know what this means? It means walking in the truth of God is love, realizing how much we don't love, and then we find comfort in his love, and then know that that's the kind of love we are to pursue. To walk in obedience is to walk in in obedience to that truth of who God is and in the truth of his love. I'm, I flipped it all completely around. Now, I, wa- I want to go back and hit the docetism. I really want to, but I'm not right now because I want us to deal with this. When you learn about walking in truth, walking in love and walking in obedience, how have you typically perceived it? And have I flipped that perception completely upside down? I'm hoping I have. And we'll have to stop right there. Now, by all means, you read 2 John some more. And we'll come back to this and we'll do a little work. We're going to, we, we will move the docetism discussion outside of our, our sanctification study and we will use Second John for it and we'll do a little bit of work so that we truly understand what it is and what it wasn't because I still think Gnosticism is the issue here, but how does Gnosticism and docetism connect? Like we will pursue some of that at a later time. There you go. Yeah, the study guides. These these study guides leave me with so much like, if, if you're left with, well, I'm not so sure about any of that. Congratulations. That's how I, I feel when I read some of these. But it's almost basically comes in like, hey, you can do it. Instead of just going, man, we, we're going to fall short of these things. All right. I'm just going to leave it there. We're put a, Put a bookmark on it because we're going to come back to these things adjacent, adjacent to Second John, docetism, and, and maybe some of the other principles found out in, in this epistle. We're, we're not done with it, I promise you. All right. I'll, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great Friday evening, a great weekend. We'll be back on the air when we can. God bless.